All right. Well, I'm going to do a review very quickly, I hope, of chapter 15. And the reason that I feel like I need to do that review is because of how chapter 16 that we're going to cover today starts. It starts with the word now, meaning there's some connection to what went on before it, at least in terms of the order of events. In chapter 15, Abram received a covenant from God, and they went through the formal covenant process. Uh, Abram had asked God what he should expect, because God said, I'm going to do good things for you, Abram. I'm going to bless you. And Abram says, well, what good thing you do for me? I don't have an heir yet. And so God showed him the stars, reminded him, God did, uh, that he was called out of the land of the earth, the Chaldeans. And so I called you out. Now look up at the stars. If you can count them, then you would be able to count your descendants. If not, then, then, then you have a lot of descendants coming. And God commanded him to bring the animals and the birds in order for Abram to go through the preparation so that they could make the covenant formal. And so uh, while Abram got those things together shortly after, God put him in a very deep sleep. And it's described that he had in this deep sleep sensations of terror and great darkness. And God tells him that his descendants would be strangers in a strange land, that they would be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But then God will judge that nation, and they will come out with many possessions. And then he turns and talks to Abram about his condition. He said, you, Abram, will live to a good old age. And gave him assurances that these troubles weren't coming to his life, at least by inference. And so then these animals are cut in two in preparation for the formality, the formalizing of the covenant. And God, in the form of a smoking pot or oven and a flaming torch, passed through those and then pronounced a covenant that was to his descendants that he would give him the land that Abram was in from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And then he listed the people, the people groups that would be displaced out of that land. So when God showed Abram the stars, what did Abram do and what did God do? Look back at chapter 15 for a moment. And um, um, and Abram had, and, and so he took him outside in, in verse 5 and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And so shall your descendants be. What did Abram do and what did God do as a result of that moment? He believed the Lord. He being Abram believed the Lord and what did God do? Counted it as righteousness. Counted it as righteousness toward him. So Abram in chapter 15 has had a pretty significant encounter with the very person of God. And God has been very direct with Abraham in saying you're going to be the starting point of a great nation. You will have many, many peoples. With that in mind, let's go read Genesis chapter 16. And so I'll need a volunteer to read us through that chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, 
Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Bohoiroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barren. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. All right. <clears throat> well, I know there's a lot there, and uh, but it, it, this kind of comes to us as a package, so I'm going to try to treat it as a package today. And so we start with verse 1. Sarah had no children. Why is this significant? Well, God promised them, uh, promised Abram in specific that he would be a father of many nations. Why else is it significant? Why would Sarai be the one to say, hey, um, I don't have any children? Yep. And the thing that we're not saying yet is that this was a big deal. Two women and this era. Your quantity of children um, corresponded to your perceived position and worth in the community. I mean, being childless was a big deal socially. It was part of their culture that that's the function of women, and so a childless woman is kind of a failure as a woman. Um, and so in verse 1, we see uh, that she did have an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Hagar is now coming into the picture. And uh, by the way, where would this Egyptian maid have come from? 
Egypt. Yeah, that's an obvious answer. <laughs> but what would be the most likely potential mechanism for this maid to come into Abram's household? If we went back to Genesis 12:16, and that verse, we see that the Egyptian king, after the incident with Abram telling the people that Sarai was his sister, and the king took her into his own household, intending to make her his wife, and then it became clear that's not the case, bad things were happening, uh, so he sent her back, chastised Abram, but in the course of things, he gave Abram a lot of gifts, and one of those things was male and female servants or slaves. And so an Egyptian servant, that's probably where it came from because they had not traveled through Egypt prior to that. So this is a good chance, not a certainty by any means, that this Egyptian maid, that word maid could be translated servant, could be a slave girl, but this Egyptian maid came into their presence most likely back in that encounter with the Pharaoh in Egypt. And in verse 2 of chapter 16, we see that it says, So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, some of you probably know, what's the concept here or the practice for a barren woman to obtain children when she's got slaves or servants? Evidently, it's for them to have them for Yeah, this is a different kind than we think of today, but this is like a surrogate person to bear children on her behalf. And so the, the way the practice worked is if a woman was in charge, had her own servants or slaves, she could give one of those slaves to her husband to father the child, but when the child is born, it's done on behalf of the mistress of the house or the boss of the house in the, in the, in, as, as the woman of the house, and so then that's going to be her child. And so Sarai is going with the customs that were available in the day, to um, use this practice in order to create an heir. Yes? Uh, it's my understanding also that the slave woman would sit on the owner's lap and have a child that way to represent. Well, yes. It's, it, this is an Eastern custom, and um, we can go to things like the Code of Hammurabi, which gives us a lot of information about things in that era. Uh, and other sources, but this is not the only time we're going to see this in the book of Genesis. Both of uh, Jacob's wives did the same thing, and in that case, it even describes physically what you're talking about when, when the children was, were, were born. That was the process they went through. Yes, it would actually be in the physical proximity of the, of the woman who desired the children. And when you look, we'll, we'll get to that later. Uh, it's over in Genesis 30. Rebecca and Leah both did this when they saw that their childbearing was slowing down or stopped or not happening. <clears throat> they did that. And those children are listed among the 12 tribes. So um, in the establishment of those 12 tribes of Jacob, that was honored as a, 
as children um, equal to the children that were born to Rachel and Leah. So, yeah. And that's where that is actually described as the way in which they were birthed. Any other comments so far? Very good. Appreciate those comments. Um, <clears throat> and so <clears throat> here's an interesting statement at the end of that verse 2. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. What? How? Fill that verse in. Put some meat, meat on those bones. What does that mean? I mean, doesn't mean just simply that he heard the words, does it? Well, there's a little bit of that going on probably. Um, certainly, uh, Sarah is not happy with the situation. Well, let's hold the over God part for a minute at least. What does it mean he listened to his wife? He goes along with it, right? He's convinced by it or willing to go along with it. I mean, we don't get inside Abram's head very deep here. We might like to. I would like to. There's several things in this passage that I wish that Moses would have been inspired by God to give some more information about. But we don't really get inside Abram's head, and we don't know what conversation happened that's not included. But when we look at this, how I, it, it just strikes me. I'll just say it this way. I want to try and figure out how to ask it as a question. My question would have been, so what conversation seems to be absent here but when you look at this, it just strikes me there was no conversation about, well, is this the what God would have? Is this the way God's going to fulfill His promise? Is this the method of the promise? I mean, I would think Abram would have, and Sarai both would have been trying to <coughs> understand for themselves, even 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 if they thought it was. Why is there no? There's no conversation listed at least maybe it really happened but Moses wasn't inspired to know it or record it but I would think well yeah well th this will fulfill God's promise we can have a child through Hagar and that will be my child and that will be your descendant and God's promises are fulfilled and here's the beginning of this great nation but there's nothing listed in the text about that and so um we, we go on with the listing of events. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, which how old is he going to be now? How old was he when he left? 75. So he's been in Canaan 10 years? 85. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Uh, he's 85. Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife and the commentators argue about well maybe not commentators the translators say there might be probably the most literal way as his woman but that's the same use they word they did use for wife uh, so whatever um, was she full status as a wife I don't know um, but anyway Abram went into her obviously they had relations like a husband and wife would have. In verse 4, he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Who's her mistress? Sarai. Sarai. And so um, 
when when that happens and she sees she's become pregnant from the relationship with Abram, Sarai is someone she despises. Why would she tend to despise Sarai? Jealousy. Well, maybe, but really, who would you expect to be jealous of who in this situation? Who's barren? Sarai. Sarai. And that was seen as a, almost as a curse. It was seen as you weren't favored by the gods or life or whatever, and so you're kind of, something's wrong with you kind of a thing. And here is Hagar. I mean, we don't know what kind of, was this a one-time event, and from that she becomes pregnant? We, we really don't know. That does happen in life, doesn't it? And but but clearly, you know, when when there, I had a relative that got married in the '60s, and in that era, you kind of expected children would most likely come along, right? Well, they were married for 20 years or so before they divorced for whatever. That's a whole nother story, but no children, and within the family, and both families were pretty close. Kind of everybody thought the husband. It appeared the husband probably had was the cause of no family. Well, after the divorce, he remarried and promptly has five kids. So that kind of cleared up any issues, right? Well, that wasn't important to hardly anybody, but it was noticed and mentioned, and I was in my late teens when all this was going on, and it's kind of, okay, so I overheard it. Uh, there quiet conversations. Well, here's Sarai and Abram, childless. Is it a deficiency in Abram, or is it a deficiency in Sarai? Well, now we know, right? Abram's quite capable of fathering children, and he does. And as a result, here is Hagar looking at her mistress, which is Sarai, mistress meaning the, the, the female head of the, of the, of the operation, and she despises Sarai. Yep, you really are deficient. And I'm not, and I, I, just, I just don't think much of you. Clearly you were an insufficient spouse or something like that. I don't, we don't know what she was thinking, but some sort of thoughts that took her to view her mistress in low regard. And um, so now we get to verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me but be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that I had conceived, I was despised in her sight. So Sarai recognizes that Hagar is not looking at her favorably at all. And she says to Abram, May the wrong done me done to me, may the wrong done me be upon you. So what was the wrong? How was Sarai wronged? Okay. How was this supposed to work in terms of this relationship? She was supposed to have 
yeah, I'm, she was supposed to look upon it as she was favored by Sarai to be the one to carry Sarai's child. The child that would belong to Sarai when, when, when it was born. But instead, she is looking at, upon Sarai with very low regard, which is inappropriate just based on positions within the household, but it's also inappropriate with regard to essentially what was the perceived, maybe it was never stated, I'm going to use the word contract, but agreement about how this was supposed to work. Here's this, she's not playing by the rules, Sagar's not. Hagar's not, sorry. And um, so when she says, may this be upon you, what's she trying to say to Abram? Well, maybe. Let it be upon you. You take blame for this. What does she want him to do? Well, maybe, but you fix this, husband. This situation is out of place. You need to make this, quote, right or bearable or, or whatever. And obviously, you know, Hagar is carrying... Abram's child there's no inner thoughts given about how Abram is looking at this but clearly Abram's going to have some hesitation about how he treats Hagar because this is his child that she's carrying and so Abram showed great leadership all husbands should pay attention to this this is how you take care of problems in the house obviously I'm being very facetious and so Abram said to her, um, well, let me finish the rest of verse 5. May the Lord judge between you and me. She's even saying, there's a wrong here between us. God's going to let him, you know, think about this. God's going to judge us. And I think I'm right, and I think God's going to tell you you're wrong, so you take care of it. And uh, he has a, a response, Abram does. Behold. Your maid's in your power. She works for you. You're in charge of her. Why are you bringing your problem to me? Is almost how he says this. Uh, do to her what is good in your sight. So Abram passes the buck back to Sarai. Which, so Sarai had an answer. You despise me? I'm going to treat you badly. I don't owe you anything. And so Sarai treated Hagar harshly, harshly enough that, you know, here's Hagar that kind of had come up in prominence within the household. She's carrying the only woman at this point to carry Abram's child. She's an important person. She has to be in the eyes of herself and others. But the treatment is harsh enough. We don't know what it was. She takes off. And she fled from Sarai's presence. So I have a question here that I want to ask about this encounter that we see comes to a head with Sarai's frustration, asking Abram to take care of it, um, and to some extent saying, God's going to judge you. This is your fault to Abram. Who, who sinned in this whole thing, this whole story we've told so far? Who sinned? Who is sinning or who sinned? What's that? 
meaning Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. How did Abram sin? Yeah, I mean, we could certainly say that looking back. Um, is it totally impossible that God was going to create the nation that Abram would follow through Hagar? No, I suppose not. Um, at least in terms of what's recorded about their conversations, it's really hard to respect Abram's decision-making when this whole issue of the promise of God doesn't even come up. There's no question about, well, is this how God would want to fulfill the promise? <clears throat> and we're coming right off of chapter 15 where he gets the covenant from God. Chapter 16 starts with now Sarai, meaning almost immediately after, you know, in terms of sequencing, it's, it's what's the next part of the story of Abram, and there's just almost no consideration of it. How about Sarai? Did she sin? How did she sin? You know, in both of their cases, they're in the place of trying to figure out how to do what God needs to do. You know, God said, I am going to make you a father of many nations. Sarai and Abraham, Abram got together, hatched a plan. Sarai started it, but Abram went along with it and said, oh, we can solve this. How often does that work when God's got a plan for you? Uh, our solutions generally run similar to this route, unless it's based on the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the use of the scripture, looking at what God has said and what his intentions are, and following those. And so they got impatient, they tried to make it happen, and now we have um, a woman added to the situation that is carrying Abram's child. How did Hagar sin? Her attitude towards Sarai after she was pregnant. She moved out of her role as a servant or slave girl. She, she, became, she began to despise her master. And that's certainly not what we're going to see even Paul in the New Testament make it clear how slaves should respond to their masters. And this isn't it. And we're going to see a little bit later in the story. She's redirected. Another comment? I've heard different people call it that Abraham had raped Hagar and that it was not willing or anything like that. But he made her his wife. Well, he didn't. Is that just in accusations, or did she convince? Well, well, Sarai is in. Power. Sarai is in charge of the. I mean, it is. If you go back and look at verse three, Abram's wife Sarai took took. Hagar the Egyptian her maid and gave her to Abram as his wife or as his woman so uh, I would say there you know certainly this is not Abram forcing himself upon Hagar uh, now I don't say that Abram made her his wife this is Sarai in in the custom Sarai is the one that's in charge of this It would not, no, not when, I mean, if you go back um, to verse 2, please go into my maid, perhaps I, Hagar, will obtain children through her. When it's that kind of a relationship, this woman is not elevated. This isn't like Rachel and Leah, where you've got competing wives. This, the way the custom worked, 
was this is a servant functioning as a surrogate to provide children to the mistress and to her husband. So she would, she would not be an equal status with Hagar, or with Sarai. And that's further shown by Abram's response. Even though we made fun of his response, there is a, an element of truth in his response. She's your servant. You're in charge of her. Now, Abram should have, I think, because Abram's in charge of the whole operation. I think he absconded from his responsibility here. He should have said, I'll take care of it. Let's talk about what you want as a result. Because she, when we're all done, she's still going to be your servant. So this is what, and I think that a good conversation about this is where I'm going to go with it. Are you okay with that? Can she, and then is your relationship between you and her as, and she being your servant, is that, would that restore that relationship to its proper place? So, so Sarai's, I mean, it's interesting that Sarai blamed Abraham, Abram for the fact there's a problem here. Let the Lord judge between us. And yet, whose plan did we follow? Um, and what did you expect? <laughs> I mean, anytime you bring this kind of a situation in, uh, your, your expectations have to include there's going to be tension that comes out of this. I mean, how could you not have tension come out of this? Uh, <coughs> well, the sin of, Sarah, of Hagar is yet to be revealed in our story. I don't think I would have called this a sin on Hagar's part. This was an accepted custom. Um, in, in reading commentaries, you know, you never know how much of this stuff to bring in. In reading commentaries, even in this era, although there were occasions of multiple spouses, and some of those we see in our, in our stories in Genesis, um, you know, Jacob, he was surprised by the switch of wives and wound up in an awkward spot, wound up with two wives and all the troubles that go with that. Um, but most of the time, they were monogamous. The custom was monogamy. There were, it, you had to be really rich to have multiple wives. So some of the rich men, historically, they know, had multiple wives out in the culture, not just talking about the Bible. But for the most part, they were monogamous people. And so you bring this in, this was simply a way to find your way to children when it wasn't happening in your monogamous relationship. So we know it was customary, but had God given the law yet of well, only within marriage? Because the, well, what God had given, and I'm going to move us on in just a second, but what God had given with clarity is what we see in Genesis. One man, one wife, that's, that's the way it's working. And that's what God established through practice. But we, I mean, we've been through Genesis from ch chapter 1. We have yet to receive any specific instructions about these kinds of behaviors. Did God give them? He may have. And one reason I say that is clearly sacrifice was happening in the time immediately following Adam and Eve or during Adam and Eve's later life because that's the whole issue between Cain and Abel. But yet there's no establishment of sacrifice by direction from God seen anywhere. So clearly, we don't have everything that God communicated to mankind. 
and I, I don't know, you know, if this was already a commandment of God. I don't know if this was, certainly this was unwise. Certainly it was different than what God established in Genesis and the creation, one through three. Uh, did God look upon this as sinful? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think God would, I think God, if God did look upon it as sinful, I think the primary sin would have been, what are you doing? I've promised you children. Would you quit trying to force this? You know, be patient. I'm going to fulfill my covenant with you and wait and see how God does it. I think that was very sinful. I think that was a, a very significant failure on their part. Other questions, comments? Yes, Dave. That's right. Not plural, singular. Yep. Number two, even though the law wasn't going to be uh, given at Sinai for another four or five hundred years at this time, from the creation of Adam, the law was written in the heart of every That's a good point. So by intuition, people knew one man, one wife. Yep. I, I think I, I would agree with that entirely. Um yeah, it, yeah, I would agree with that entirely, without any doubt. Okay, anything else? You know, Hagar has now left. Anything else so far? So after Hagar fled, we get into this part where there's an interaction between an angel of the Lord and Hagar. It starts in verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And it's not real clear just where they were, although before we're done, we're going to find out that it's in the area of Kadesh, and we'll, we'll get there, which is down toward Egypt. It, what we do know is there was a, the road to Shur was the road that people took to go to Egypt. So um, we're headed toward Egypt in all probability. Very likely, <coughs> she's left Abram, and she's in a foreign country for her. She's Egyptian. Very likely she would be headed back to Egypt. And so the angel of the Lord found her and uh, by the spring, and he said in verse 8, Hagar, Sarah's maid, or Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, he didn't just call her Hagar. He called her Sarai's maid which is an indication of how God viewed Hagar with regard to his relationship to Sarai and where she's come from. And Hagar answers, uh, let's back up a minute. I don't want to go past this. There, before we're done, we're going to be having a, um, a discussion about who is this? Is this God? Is this an angel? What's going on here? And I'm going to say in verse 7, this is my starting point for trying to figure that out. It says the angel of the Lord. It's very clear in the language that this is a messenger. It could say the messenger of the Lord, but the construction of it certainly talks about it as though it's not the Lord himself, but is a messenger of the Lord. Now, to make it more complicated, there, are, there is an instance or two in the Old Testament 
where you can, where it sure looks like the messenger of the Lord is the Lord himself. I'm not going to try to get into all that. That would be not for sure, but very likely. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm starting there when we look at this and say, this is a messenger of the Lord. It's very clearly stated. And so she responds in verse, uh, the end of verse 7, 8, <clears throat> I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. So she's very clear, fairly direct answer. Um, Sarai are, and I are in conflict, and I'm getting out of her presence. Then the angel of the Lord in verse 9 said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. There's the sin. God, through this messenger, redirects Sarai, or Hagar back to Sarai and says, Be submissive. Live out the relationship that you find yourself in with her. Don't run from it. Verse 10, Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, so gave her direction. Now he's going to give her some information. I will greatly multiply your descendants so they will be too many to count. Does that sound like something else we've heard? This is very similar to the promise to Abram. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, he continued, Behold, see, look, you're with child. And then he gives her things she doesn't know, and you will bear a son. So you've got a male child that you're carrying. You're going to bear him. He will be born, and you shall call his name Ishmael. And so far, this sounds pretty good if you're Hagar, right? Okay. Mighty, she, she might even have made the connection, so this is the lineage of Abram coming. But now we kill that idea. But call him Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And i uh, sorry, I skipped that, but uh, I didn't see it as I was getting ready to turn the page. But his name, um, uh, I wrote it down. Now I can't see the word Ishmael on my page. God will hear. That's what Ishmael means. God will hear. And then in the last part of 11, it says, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction, God heard, God recognized your affliction. And so he's identifying with Hagar that, yeah, you're in a difficult situation. But then he goes on to talk about Ishmael in verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. We know from history who these people turn out to be. Who is Ishmael the father of? What group of people? Arabs. And where do the Arabs primarily wind up is this kind of the centering part of their living? And the answer to that is that if you looked at the region they tend to live in, it's pretty much centered around Saudi Arabia in modern times. So when it says at the end, he will live to the east of all his brothers, who's, who are his brothers going to be? The Israelites. And so he's, they're going to be to the east of Israel. Where do we find the Egyptians today for the most part? The, the, I'm sorry, the Arabs, thank you. I, I need help like that from time to time. 
uh, is, is there in the east of Israel. Now, are there other Arabs in other places? Yes. Are there Arabs in Israel, the land of Israel at this time? Yes. But in general, even to this day, they are living to the east of Israel. This description, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him. He will live to the east of his brothers. When you read that, what, what do you think of in terms of, of um, the kind of man that Ishmael is going to be? Good next door neighbor? No. Um, in modern times, you, you could have said, you know, be kind of, he'll be stubborn as a mule, maybe. Uh, in this case, he said a wild donkey. Do you suppose a wild donkey is a pleasant critter to have around? No, I, I think he's going to be very difficult, and it very clearly says that he's, he's not going to be friendly, cooperative with anybody, and he's going to be against everybody around him, and oh, by the way, they will be against him too. So it's going to be a long life of conflict. Do we, have we seen that in the world? Yeah, the Arab lands just tend to be a constant place of conflict. And so that has continued uh, in varying degrees through this day. And when we think, you know, if I... When I imagine running through this story, and here's Hagar, and um, Hagar is there, the, the, the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, by the way, you know, you're going to have lots of, you're going to be the, have lots of offspring, you're going to have so many in your descendants, you can't count them all, and, and then to hear this, you know, I, I would be, I would anticipate some level of, really? You know, it's going to be that bad? But she doesn't seem to react that way. The reaction that's recorded here, and I don't mean to say that it's not correct by saying it that way, but what Moses brings out that God had her put down on paper begins there in verse 13. Then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And this is where the people start trying to pick this apart and figure out what's going on but let's get to the name first you are a god who sees for she said have i even remained alive here after seeing him so by hagar's language it appears that she's thinking this is an encounter with god himself and i'm still breathing wonder of wonders and that that seems to be what she's saying and uh, and you are a God who sees. Therefore, the well was called Ber Shalai Roy, which me which means uh, let me get let me let me get to where I broke that down. Well of the living one seeing me. And so she is calling. She is recognizing that this is the well of the living one. That I am. It's the L. It's a derivative of L, like you see for God. The living one seeing me. That Roy is a seeing kind of a word. And uh, so that's how she reacts to this. Was it really God that was there? Well, you could read this a little differently. And I would tend to. Then she called, upon, called the name of the Lord. 
we see cases where Abram calls on the name of the Lord, even though the Lord hasn't, is not revealed to him, not right there. He's not just coming off of, of that kind of a thing. It, but he would build an altar and call on the name of the Lord. You could read it this way. Then she called upon God. But you get to this, who spoke to her? Well, God did speak to her, but it was through an angel. And that's how I tend to go with this because of the fairly clear language here. And she declares to him through the angel, maybe, maybe through a prayer type uh, declaration, you are a God who sees, for I've remained alive here after seeing him, the angel. Others would say, no, this is really God come to Hagar. And it was really, it wasn't an angel, it was God all the time that was right here. And Hagar recognized that, saw God, and named the well as she did for coming in contact with the God who sees her, that spoke to her. Yes, sir? I just have one quick question, maybe you can help me. In verse 10 it says, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will, surely. Now the angel isn't going to do that. That's true. Well, there are multiple cases, though, where an angel would come to God speaking on behalf of God speaking in the first person. Okay. So, you, and nobody's seen God, and it clearly states that well, nobody's had eyes on God. It, it, God says nobody's going to see me and live. Now, this, that's, that's later on when he's interacting with Moses. But we've already encountered several times where... There's been an interaction with God and Abram. Like the second person of the Trinity, possibly. Well, first, God. second, third. I mean, it could have been a Christophany, but I really don't think so because when you look at, ver at chapter 15, every time the word for God is said here, it is the God most high word. So it's the God in its fullness of Trinity, I would say, is probably true. So um, I'm not trying to say that people looked on the fullness of God and lived, but what I'm saying, God in some form has appeared to Abram multiple times and interacted with him. And so whatever form he appeared to Abram, he could have chosen to appear as Hagar. Now I would be willing to very quickly listen to other thoughts about how to put that together. But that's kind of where I go with it. But you're right, one of the statements, Rick, that caused people to say, no, this had to be God. He speaks in first person. But God sends messages at other times where he speaks in first person and it's clearly an angel. So I, I don't, you know, I, and, and is it absolutely essential that we know for sure, was this an angel or was it God? I don't know that it, it is. I think if it was the main point, I think we would have seen more clarity given by Moses as he penned these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and you know in, in reading through it and the commentaries that I looked at you know one guy is emphatic it had to be God and another guy is equally emphatic no 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 look at the language that's not God that's an angel so anyway that's that's what I come up with Questions, comments, thoughts?
Right out of the New American Standard, I did not research that word because I wasn't, I was not seeing, uh, I did not, I, did, I didn't come across the other wording. You're looking at which version? Um, online at Bible, Bible Lover, yeah, it, the NAS says in defiance, and then when I This is the 95 version, maybe in the 2000 version they decided that word needed to be the other way. I'm sorry. Um, okay, ESV says that uh, you shall dwell, you shall dwell over, 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 against, over, over against all of them. I didn't know where huh. that part of it came. Well, you you run into an area I didn't look into. Okay. I just don't know. Just curious. And, and it may be that the defiance word would make more sense if you went and looked at the – I mean, I, I went back. I selected a number of words to go back and look at, uh, you know, the Hebrew and how that got brought forward. That wasn't one of them. So. LSD says you will dwell in the face of all of them. What do you got, Dave? Well, the New American Standard, the old version said it to me, and he has substance to. And so if you look at literally, it means to be in the face of or in defiance of. So literal. Okay, literal dwell. Yep, I see that over here in these notes. I didn't read that note. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised the NAS would have not reversed those two and put the East in a note somehow instead of... That's unusual for the NAS to go that way. And, and I'll just be very... I'll be a little transparent about versions for just a moment. I really like the 95 better than the 2000. Now, in this case, I think the 2000 probably got it right that would be in defiance of his brothers. So I made a big deal out of East when defiance might have been better or would be better. But there are some other passages and a few of them where I just don't care for what they did in the 2000 version. I, I think they got it wrong, so I just kind of stick with the 95. So you might, we might have some differences even amongst the NAS from time to time because of that. Anything else? Good. I appreciate you all bringing those things up. You know, let's get it as right as we can. King James uses brackets. Okay. Yep. Well, and they would be clearly in the presence of his. They're, they're going to stay in close contact. Absolutely. Um, the verse 14, the well was called Bear, Lahai, Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. We don't really know where Bered is, but we know Kadesh is down. My map went away, but is down close to Egypt. So it, he, she, if she was down near Kadesh, Berea, which is what Kadesh usually means here, we think. Uh, she was well on her way, but not to Egypt yet. And we get to verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So that lines up with left at 75, 85 when she became uh, with child and 86 when the child was born and Abram we don't know did did Hagar go back and say by the way I met with God probably uh, but we don't know and by the way God told me to call him Ishmael and I can see Abram saying well okay 
or did God tell Abram, or did God just foreknow and so said to Hagar, he's going to pick the name Ishmael. I, I don't know. But clearly God knew exactly what his name was going to be. It was going to be Ishmael, God who sees. And because of that, it's very likely that Hagar told him the story because they tended to put meaning with their names. And so here is Ishmael being born in Abram's 86th year, which it's not stated anywhere, but it certainly looks like Hagar took the direction that God gave her. Go back, make yourself the servant again, be respectful or be obedient to your mistress, follow her direction, do what she tells you to, live again as a servant and quit being looking down your nose at your mistress because you were able to become pregnant and she has not. Questions, comments? I think there's a real story for us in this, and, and I think it's already here, but I think it's going to become much more poignant as the years go by, and as we continue to live in a world that is self-destructing, is that too, diff, too, too strong of a way of saying it? And that is, I think it would be easy for us to become impatient with how God would take care of us. Um, the scriptures are full of statements about, in this world you will have trouble. If it hated me, it will hate you. Um, and descriptions about the world being difficult and trying to run over us. And Jesus saying, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. With the things that are happening, do I, do I pretend to know what's coming? No, I don't at all pretend to know what's coming. But I certainly see, depending upon how things go and some of the things that have a good, pretty strong foundation right now, what we might be living through might be pretty, pretty tough. Um, when Daniel got an opportunity to look at the end times, which, by the way, is the vision he did not write down. He was told not to. But he became physically ill because of what he saw was coming. And we may have to live through a lot. It is not in our best interest to try to take things in our own hands and make it work out. Man's solutions are not going to fix this world. Only thing that will fix this world is a new heaven and a new earth. And God's got a plan for that and he's made it clear. And we may have to suffer. How did the apostles look at it when they were given the punishment and the suffering at the hands of men? They, they were pleased that they were found what? Worthy. Worthy to suffer for Christ. Paul said that he might know the fellowship of his suffering. Did Jesus suffer? Jesus said, well, if your master suffers, what do you expect? So we have a heritage here that has some level of accuracy about how this nation started and what it stands for and what we 
had come as believers to expect from it that is quickly being proven it's not as sound as we wish it was. What's going to happen? I don't know, and I'm not trying to say it's going to be terrible. I don't know what God's got in mind. Um, But I do know this, that as things go wrong, the answer is not to turn back to the Constitution or the heritage. Now, don't get me wrong. Do we want to vote for the right people? Yes. Do we want to encourage the legal system to follow the Constitution? Yes. Do we want to be free people living with the rights that are in the Constitution? Yes, but the answer isn't anything legal or anything done with the force of mankind. The answer is going to be, God, what are you doing? Praying, living out the directions he's given us as believers. And that's really what they failed to do. They came up with their own answer. It clearly was not so far outside the will of God that he stopped it from happening. But it's also clearly not how he planned to bless Abram. He came later and said, huh, this is not your heir. This is not the one. This is not the child of the promise. And look at what price the world has paid and Abram paid and his offspring have paid since that time. So we need to make sure that when we take actions that we are recognizing that our identity is as the nation of God. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people called for God's own purposes. Sorry, there's a little bit of the Ironman summit talk, or Ironman dinner talk in that. But th- that's where we have to live. If we live anywhere else, we're just trying to force things the way we want them to be. And then will there be times that we might be called upon by God to, to get involved with some of those issues? Yeah. Uh, but we've got to make sure we do it for the right reasons and do it because God's calling us into it, not because we're trying to make it be the way we want it to be. So anyway, that's my comments for the end of this. Anybody else? Let's pray. Father, we are your people. We want to be your people. Lord, there are so many things that go on in the world that we wish were different, and we'd like to do everything we can to make them different. Lord, help us to realize that our big gun is you and that the real change comes through the salvation of men as they are called into the new covenant. Uh, Lord, let us be great ambassadors for Jesus the Christ to call people into his kingdom and to teach them to observe the things that he taught and that came out of the New Testament. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray.